You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. You know, sometimes the liturgy is funny because you read a passage like that that ends the way it does. And I don't know if you want to say, thanks be to God for that word. That one felt really good right up in here. I like that a lot, you know. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that, but let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, maker of all things and judge of all people, in your word today, we beg you afresh, judge us not according to our lives, but according to your Son. Amen. In the Old Testament... God gives us, his people, a special name. It's a name he gives us when he wrestles with Jacob in the wilderness. It's a common name that we all know, but we may not know what the name Israel means. Israel means wrestles with God. And in giving Israel that name, and with us, according to Paul, being grafted into the line of Abraham, you and I are Israel— And you and I are people whose religion is defined by wrestling with God. And it's a fitting name that we're given by God, especially as we grapple with this text. I'll confess that as I've been meditating on it and preparing for this message, at times I found it's had me in a headlock. And other times I found myself trying to put the word of God in a full Nelson only to end up pinned to the ground with both my shoulders on the floor. And so today we're going to let the Word do a little bit of its work on us, listening honestly and wrestling intently. So here we go, bing, bing, round one. And I want to wrestle with two statements jumping out of this text as it grabs hold of us, as they grab hold of us. So here goes, number one, and it's a big one, clear as day. The Bible is saying, Christians are to judge one another. Christians are to judge one another. How about that? Now, I'm sure after that statement, this sermon is going to go viral on iTunes because everybody wants to hear that. No, actually, are you, as, are you feeling about as uncomfortable as I am with this passage and the way it sort of hits you in the head? And let's be honest, in 2019, the word judge is kind of our culture's equivalent of the F-bomb. And truthfully, I'm not sure what to do with this. It's troubling to me that a brief survey of the word usage in 1 Corinthians, you find this reality, that the the words and cognates of the verb to judge are used with what appear to be as much frequency or almost the same frequency as the words and cognates of the verb to love when it comes to how the church is to live its internal communal life together. And why does this scare me? I mean, yeah, I probably need to confess, as you do, that without knowing it, I've contracted my culture's allergy to moral clarity and judgment so that the word judge triggers a major reactionary reflex in me. But perhaps you, like me, have seen how the church has utterly destroyed and burned people by taking this good biblical idea of judging one another and twisting it around our dirty, sinful, and selfish flesh and turning it into a weapon to utterly crush bruised reeds, smother smoldering wicks, and bludgeon weary souls. I've certainly had my fair share of the church's judgmentalism cast upon me. And if I'm honest, I've been the perpetrator of that judgmentalism as well, and it sickens me. Because we all know 
that Jesus reserved his strongest words and harshest criticism for those who tore down people with their judgments in the name of God. And yet here we are, wrestling with a God who tells us to judge one another. Perhaps, though, we can say one thing to clarify what judgment is and what it is not. And first of all, as Andrew pointed out last week in his sermon, we are to be about judging within the community of faith, not necessarily the world out there. And beyond that, here the text is lending itself to the idea of judgment as meaning rightly discerning the truth in matters of dispute, or maybe more of an etymological reading. This word judge means to separate truth from lies, fact from fiction, together in humble and prayerful community. And what this kind of judgment does not include is rendering a final verdict about someone's ultimate destiny. You hear that difference? It seems to me that this parses the difference between godly judgment on the one hand and ungodly and sinful judgmentalism on the other. Godly judgment rightly discerns right from wrong. It rightly separates truth from error. It calls a thing, in the words of Martin Luther, what it actually is. It names it. Ungodly judgmentalism renders final verdicts about people that are supposed to be left to God alone. And perhaps it's that latter part where the church has gone dreadfully awry. Because isn't it the case that when someone's felt judged by the church, the words behind the words are often those very final words, you're going to hell. So God help us. I mean, I'm convinced that the only way all of this can be done properly is with exceeding amounts of prayer, humility, patience, and communication piled on boatloads of fear and trembling. Now, if that's the first point, and if that was a headlock, the second point may be more like an armbar, depending, you know, on how you feel about it, but it definitely still is uncomfortable. Number two, Christians are to settle their disputes in-house. Paul says, why are you taking your cases out there to the civil magistrates? You should deal with your cases in here. Now, does anyone else feel about 107 red flags pop up when you hear something like this? Even this week, our news feeds have been filled with shameful stories of the abuse and victimization of the weak and vulnerable as a result of churches dealing with their disputes in-house. I mean, it turns my stomach. But it turns out that this is not what Paul is talking about here when he talks about settling our disputes in-house. In fact, he calls these disputes in verse 2 trivial cases, which almost certainly means something more like small claims court and not at all something like our news headlines, which do need, in our day and age, the mediation of the civil courts. Lord, help us. Paul is saying, guys, Christians are people who deal with their problems sincerely, humbly, and directly. Directly. That's key. It's really key. In the psychology speak of Ed Friedman, the Christian community fights the urge to create triangles. We don't triangulate. We deal with one another directly, with wisdom and prayer, and with a love that hopes all things. And this just might be a challenging word for our southern instincts, which tend toward more indirect communication, especially if 
It involves problems and tensions, you know, and we have the Word of God here challenging us, be clear, be humbly, lovingly clear with one another. And so we're wrestling with those two things. Judge one another and then do so in-house. And then on top of that, what's all this crazy business about judging the world and judging angels in verses 2 and 3? Paul uses strange logic. He says, you all shouldn't be going to the world for judgment. You should be judging yourselves. Because don't you know that you will judge the world? You can't sit under what the Lord has put you over. And also, by the way, you're going to judge angels too. So what in the world is Paul talking about? And the most honest answer that I can give you is that we really don't know. There really isn't all that much scriptural evidence. But we do have a little bit from the Bible in Daniel and in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. And evidence from the writing that happened in the years between the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. That first century, first century Christianity had an idea that at the end of time, God was going to gather all the people that he saved, the saints as they're called here and in Revelation, and he would give us the gavel, granting us judgment over the world and over even the created heavenly beings. That this will happen is attested to in the scriptures, but the details of what this means really can only be pure speculation. So let's not go beyond the text. But the cool part, though, is that the ambiguity of all this actually doesn't change what's really clear about the move that Paul's making. And here's where I think everything hits home and will get more grounded for you and for me, who honestly maybe aren't at all worried about end-of-days courtroom scenarios between us and winged celestial creatures, but maybe we're a little worried about how our kids are going to turn out, or whether our job will be there in a year, or whether we're going to find the spouse that we've been waiting for, or whether the earth is going to be a safe place to live for the next generation, or whether this suffer suffocating loneliness will ever leave. Paul's logic here is packed with power. You have to recognize the move that he's making. He's making a command, and then he's grounding that command in a reality. The command is, settle your disputes in-house. And the grounding reality is, because at the end of days, this will be your job. This is what God's preparing you for. You see, Paul could have used a different grounding, like he does in a lot of other places in his, in his epistles. He could have said, you need to settle your disputes in-house because you are one body. You're the body of Christ. You can't be divided. You must be united because you are one in Christ. And that's true, but that's not the defense that Paul uses here. He doesn't do that. Instead, he points to the end, to the future, way down the road. And he's saying to the Corinthians, when you take your disputes outside the world, you're not acting in line with where you're headed. As one commentator put it, and here's the crux of it, you're engaging in activity incompatible with your hope. You know, we have a hope for a certain kind of future that God has prepared for us as the people of God. And we're not acting in line with that reality, Paul says. We're taking a step back. We're turning away. You're engaging in activity incompatible with your hope. And all of a sudden, the lid is blown off this passage because that will preach. You know, how many of you today are in a place where you've lost sight of the hope that's yours in Christ? 
How many of you are living lives incompatible with the hope that you have in Jesus? And so, brothers and sisters, if we're to be a people of unity and right judgment, we must more fundamentally be a people of hope. And hope is believing in a vision of the future and believing that that vision will come true. It's believing that the future told you will come true. Well, how do we know what the future holds? And how do we know that that vision will come true? And from the Bible's perspective, it's actually quite simple. God makes promises. And our hope is bound up in God's promises. It's similar to how it used to work with my kids when they were younger. And we knew that Abby and I had a day full of errands, but at the end of the day, we were going to go to Chuck E. Cheese's. Kids, we've got to go to the store, we've got to get groceries, we've got to get oil changed on the car, and then stop by the hardware store. But we promise that after all that, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese's and we're going to have some fun. And now, if there were no promise like that, all throughout our errands running, the kids would moan and complain, this is the worst, most boring day ever, this day is no fun. But with a promise held out like Chuck E. Cheese's, which is like the heaven and the holy grail for every toddler, even before we get to Chuck E. Cheese, the whole mood, the whole color of the day, it shifts. We're running the same boring, mundane errands, but the kids are now living with a hope. These errands aren't the final word. There's something ahead, bright and glorious, whose beams are shining backward on the present. And on a much larger scale, this is how it works for Christians who lay hold of the promises of God and then demand that God be true to his promises. So brothers and sisters, I want to remind you today of some of God's great and glorious promises to you so that you actually might be filled with hope to the end that we might be a people who judge rightly and who love one another well. So let me ask a bunch of questions. Is there something in your life making you afraid today? Hear God's promise from Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Does something in your life today make you feel overwhelmed or like you're drowning? Hear the promise of God. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. Do you feel loved or unloved and forgotten? Hear God's promise. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Do you feel like you're fighting a war right now, attacked on every side? Hear the promise of God. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Do you feel bound and brokenhearted or stricken by poverty? Hear God's promise. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, Jesus said, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for prisoners. Do you feel guilty, ashamed of your sin? Hear God's promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you feel like a slave? Hear God's promise. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you feel anxious? Hear God's promise. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and promise the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you overwhelmed with grief and sorrow? Do you feel like the tears will never ever stop flowing? Hear God's promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Some critics right now might be tempted to say, Zach, these are just arbitrary statements from Scripture that you're taking out of context. But they're only arbitrary and taken out of context until we recognize that every single one of God's promises are bound up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his work on the cross. It's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 1 when he says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And it's why Paul's words at the beginning of this very epistle that we've been preaching from in today's passage say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, when the cross happens, happened, all of God's promises were ratified. They were set in stone. They were sealed in blood. They were proven. The cross made every single promise of God, including the ones I just read to you, permanent and irrevocable. The cross is proof positive that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. And so may God grant you fresh comfort from his promises today. And may your hope be renewed in such a way that the color shifts on whatever present circumstances that you find yourself in. O oh, Israel, who wrestles with God, hope in the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.